Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. If you've been associated with the Interchurch Holiness Convention for very long at all, then you already know that H.E. Shmuel was one of our founders. He was a wonderful man of God and a fantastic preacher. And he titles this sermon, which was preached at Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida in 1986, Sir, We Would See Jesus. I know you will enjoy this wonderful sermon. Thank you, Brother French. It's always a joy to be at Hope Sound and to see the faces of our friends from across the country, from the east, of course, in the north, for sure, and the far west. It's good to greet one another, as the old Methodists would say, and are we yet alive to see each other's face and to exchange a greeting in the name of the Lord? And we are still alive. And as the Dutch would say, you look so good in your face. Well, uh, let's ask God to help us tonight. I was in a camp a number of years ago and had a number of messages that I felt I should preach and the camp president began to wonder whether I was getting enough to eat, whether I was getting enough sleep. Anyhow, he thought something was eating me. He felt that each time I came to the platform, I was in a bad humor. I hope I'm not in a bad humor tonight. But uh, whatever humor I'm in, I take it as from the Lord. Let us stand and let us read in John's Gospel, chapter 12. There are moods of the Spirit, and there are times, and then there are times. I have a little note here in my Bible that I read to myself occasionally. Sermons ought not to come easily every time, regardless of our gifts or our time with books. Preachers need to be disquieted sometimes, restless, sometimes groaning, panting, intense. Well, I guess I'm in there somewhere. I think that sort of fits tonight. Reading in John's Gospel, chapter 12, This chapter deals with the six days before the Passover, Jesus coming to Bethany, 
He had raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd been anointed by Mary with costly spikenard. And then in, he's now up to the feast. And there were certain Greeks, verse 20, among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. You may be seated. I would like to call our attention to the obvious phrase, Sir, we would see Jesus. I believe we're at a point in our movement when we need to see someone. I believe we're at a point in our movement when we need to see Jesus. We are a movement at the crossroads. We are a movement in trouble in many, many areas. We are a movement that is not growing. We are a movement that is dividing. We are a movement that is dividing, but our division does not mean addition, which a healthy division should mean. As a matter of fact, our divisions are subtractions through attrition. We should be multiplying by attractiveness. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him as we've never needed to see him in a long, long while. We are becoming a smug, complacent, divisive, uncompassionate, protesting body of people. It's primarily not the responsibility or the blame of our layman. It is primarily the responsibility and blame on we preachers. Our laymen are usually farther ahead of us in many ways than we as members of the clergy. And so we need to do some serious thinking. The focal point of the lesson, of course, is Jesus. And I do want to make a statement here that I just called the other day from the writings of A.W. Tozer. Tozer died in 1963. What he said in 63 is appropriate today. Matter of fact, anything Tozer has to say seems to be appropriate for any time. He is considered a legalist by the Calvinists. I heard a staunch Calvinist the other day on a Moody station sort of giving Tozer down the river. Uh, he said something kind about him to sort of recover 
the situation, but the basic statement was not really complimentary to Tozer. But Tozer said, It is my considered opinion that under the present circumstances we do not want a revival at all. A widespread revival of the kind of Christianity we know today in America might prove to be a moral tragedy from which we could not recover in a hundred years. What he is saying is we don't want a revival of what we have. We don't want a revival of what we have. I think that's rather accurate. If we have revival, we want it on a different and higher plane than what we're experiencing in our conferences and churches and colleges and missions throughout the country. We wouldn't want more of what we've got, would we? We wouldn't want more fussing and contention and division and strife and division and haranguing and legalism and liberalism. We wouldn't want more of that, would we? We've got more of it today than we've ever had before. I'll put it this way. We have more today than we've had in the last 35 years. If I sound like the grandfather that uh, Brother French talked about, well, so be it. I don't feel like a grandfather. I feel like uh, thunder. I hope there's a little lightning here. I hope, I hope lightning strikes me and you. I hope we'll be stabbed awake. There's a smugness and a complacency that's turning many of our people off. It turns many of our young people off. I'm, I'm disturbed by the fine young men that are going back to the Nazarenes or going back to the Wesleyans or they're going to the Methodists or they're going uh, independent or they're going somewhere else and they're, and they're leaving us. They're drifting away from us. It makes me unhappy. I'm a poor loser. I, I fight to win. I run to obtain the crown. I don't labor so as to beat the air. I want wheat. I'm not interested in chaff. Amen. And so uh, we need to see Jesus. Amen. Now, if you need to fasten your seat belt, you go ahead and do it. It wouldn't be a bad idea. But these Greeks that came to see Jesus may be able to teach us a few lessons. Who are these Greeks? Why did they come? Why were they interested in meeting Jesus? Well, scholars tell us that the Greeks were probably proselytes of the gate. That is, they're the farthest removed from the inner sanctum of the, of the religion of the Jews, or the farthest out. The next division would be uh, the uh, proselytes within the gate, which were known as uh, proselytes of righteousness. But they weren't that. They may have heard John the Baptist. They might have been his disciples. 
They probably heard Jesus speak on some occasion. They might have uh, been present when some miracle took place, such as the raising of Lazarus, which transpired very shortly prior to this meeting. They may have been there. Or they may have just got up to the city in time for the camp meeting, and they'd heard about Jesus but never heard him in person or never met him personally. But when they came to the feast, they came to see Jesus, and they came to meet him. The speculation is that probably Jesus was in an inner court, and these Greeks were unable, not permitted, to enter that inner court. Perhaps they bumped into uh, Philip and Andrew outside, maybe saw them coming and going through the doorway, and they stopped him and said, hey, you're one of his. Aren't you one of his? Yes, you're one of his. I think your name is Andrew. And I believe your name is Philip. Yes, that's right. We want to see Jesus. But we, we'd like to see him. Sir, sir, uh, we'd like to see Jesus. And so scholars are not sure whether they met or not, but I believe they did meet. I believe it's Jesus met with the uh, Greeks who came and inquiring after him. I'm not going to try to deal with the balance of the conversation that, trans that I believe transpired, but uh, I just want it clearly understood that I personally believe that they did meet with Jesus and those beautiful and wonderful truths listed immediately following this text are part of that discourse and that understanding. They were Greeks who were tired of the barren, ritualistic religion of intellectual speculation and or Greek philosophy. They were tired of all of that. That's why they'd already taken the initiatory steps of coming in to the Jewish religion. That's why they were called proselytes. They'd already taken the first step. They were turned off by Greek philosophy. They were turned off by pagan rituals. They were turned off by the form and the ceremony. They came because they had either heard him or they'd heard about him or they heard about his miracles or perhaps they were present when Lazarus was called forth. But these Greeks were hungry men. They were hungry. There was something they desired more than what they had seen or what they had felt. Here they are at the feast. There's a lot of activity, a lot of coming and going, a lot of, uh, a lot of religious activity. But they're not satiated with religious activity. A lot of fellows in long flowing robes and clattering phylacteries. A lot of fellows with shining eyes. A lot of fellows with uh, the right kind of paraphernalian garb. There were Pharisees, of course, multitudes. There were Sadducees, of course. There were there was uh, peasants and publicans and sinners. There was a little bit of everything that had come to Jerusalem for the feast. But uh, there was nothing very satisfying about the ritual. Even this ritual, even this good ritual, even the Judeo ritual was not satisfying or delighting them. And they were satisfied that this one who was speaking, this one who was teaching, this one who was going up and down the countryside proclaiming uh, and inviting 
something about him. He is different from anyone else, and he is different from everyone else. And uh, we want to see him. Uh, I, it, we believe he has the key to the hunger of our heart. Uh, he has the solution to the hurt in our soul. Sir, we would see Jesus. Amen. And friend, you and I are getting to where we're a little tired with the ritual. And we're a tired, little tired with the ceremony. And we're tired with a lot of things and fed up with a lot of things. But friend, in our heart of hearts, we have a hunger. What is happening to our people across the country because they are not being fed on the bread from heaven, because they are not eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They are going to the charismatics or the Calvinists. They are going to the far corners of the earth because we really have little or nothing to set before them. There are hungry people in our midst that uh, are still wanting to see Jesus. And it's high time that you and I, in some measure, demonstrated the life of Jesus, that the life of Christ might be magnified and uh, uh, manifest and demonstrated in our mortal body. The hungry people, hurting people, thirsty people who are looking for something better. But we're a movement, movement in the crossroads. We're a movement uh, that is in some way ceasing to move. And then there's another sense in which we're drifting and drifting and drifting farther and farther away from those verities and realities that were ours. And while I'm not an old fellow, I have been around for a while. And in the early days, before anybody came out of anything, uh, there was the, there was Rob French and Hope Sound, and there was the IH Convention. They were sort of just ahead of their time in many, many ways. And so we have seen something, and we have felt something. But, friend, we're a long, long ways from the reality that feeds the hungry heart. We came out, and we were protesters. We were against everybody and everything. We We, we just opposed Hershey bars and chocolate candy and... We just, we're, we're just protesting. You can get a crowd together just by protesting anything. Well, that day's passed. But we're still protesting. Now we're not protesting the world and the flesh and the devil and television and the rat race of the world. Now we're protesting each other. And we're disseminating and disintegrating. And it's high time what we come back to the centrality. The focus of this lesson is Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Amen. Now, this is not just a cliche. Someone said the other day that by the time Swindoll got through giving out a list of cliches that preachers ought not to use, he didn't have anything left to preach. Well... I don't know about that. I didn't hear Swindoll's cliches, and I, I don't know if this heat would be considered a cliche or not, but it's time you and I, it's time our movement goes back and sees Jesus as we have not seen him in a long while. And I pray God will help us in this brief time allotted to me tonight that we'll call our wandering thoughts in and that we'll bring our minds to discipline. And that instead of coming with an argumentative mind and a contentious mind, 
You'll sit there for just a little while and think with me, and I hope pray with me that once more we will see Jesus. Amen. It's imperative that we do. So much is at stake. We must see Jesus. We don't want a revival of more of what we've got. We need a genuine revival that is Christ-brought, that is heaven-brought, that is blood-bought. That's exactly what we must have. You may not like all the implications of it. I'm probably not thinking what you're thinking. I'm thinking something else to which I will get a little later on. But nevertheless, we do need a mighty reviving. And we need to have a Jesus Christ wrought revival in our camp meeting that is coming up. Amen. It's not enough to have the uh, the ritual and have lovely, well-structured ceremonies and services, although I'm for structured and order me- orderly meetings. But somewhere along the line, we must have the warmth and the fervor and the adoration and the, the worship of Christ in such a matter where Christ is truly the focal point and, and Christ is no longer the focal point of the movement of which I am speaking. It's divorce and remarriage or it's bobbed hair or it's television or it's wedding rings or it's something or other have usurped the place that belongs to the Son of God. And before you shut me down, let me tell you something. Those things have not brought us revival. We came out, I still protest television. I still protest the divorce evil. I still protest all the rest of the world and worldliness that goes, that is coming into the movement. But my friend, that is not revival. And protest is not getting us to where we need to go. We, once again, must have an incarnation of Christ in our midst. There must be an incarnation of the Son of God in our worship services once again. Amen. And he must be the focal point of our attention, our teaching, our preaching, our praying, our giving, our service, every aspect of our life and our behavior must be focused upon Christ. Christ the living living one, Christ the risen one. The Greeks were hungry for reality. They were hungry for truth. They were hungry for righteousness. Yes, they were no doubt hungry for salvation. They needed to see Jesus to have their sins taken away, just as you and I. They needed to see Jesus uh, who promised the baptism of the Holy Ghost, just like you and I. Now they needed to see Jesus for whatever their need might be, whether it was a healing of a body or the cleansing of, of the soul, whatever it was, they needed to see Jesus. And friends, whatever our basic need is today, the real cure is found in Christ and in Christ alone. In Him there is cleansing. In Him there is renovation. In Him there is new birth. In Him there's a new movement. A little later on, he brings so beautifully to light, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. The principle, friend, right here is that the principle that Christ lived by and died by is the principle that must be recovered in our movement. 
We are, we are dying, but we are not dead. We have been everlastingly dying, dying to the world and the flesh and the devil. But somehow or other, we have never become dead to ourselves. And we are failing to be truly dead to sin that we might be fully and completely alive to God. Amen. I tell you what, our movement has to die. There's go- we are going to have to die in the likeness of his death. That means there must be a crucifixion. That means things must not only be dead, but it also means priorities must be established. And we need to get some things in the right and proper order. We're getting things out of, out of whack and out of kilter and out of priority. And we're elevating proper things, legitimate things, right things. We're, we're elevating them all out of proportion to everything else. And divorce and remarriage is one of them. We have elevated this horrible and hideous problem to the level, to the, to the level of inspiration, the vicarious atonement, the uh, sacrificial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's up here the level with everything else. And it's a truly along with a number of other worldly issues plaguing us. It is a divisive thing. It is a divisive thing. And it is being used as a tool or a cudgel to divide us and to splinter us and to thrash us and to hammer us and to bruise us. It has. But friends, let's see Jesus. Let's bring Jesus Christ back to the center of things. You see, the reason we're fussing, the reason we're wrangling, the reason we're undecided is because he no longer is the ultimate authority. We say he's the authority, but we're not accepting his authority. Well, let me hurry on. I'll get back to it before I'm finished. First of all, if we were to see Jesus tonight, I think the first thing he'd do would be to call us to prayer. I think that's proper. He'd call us to prayer. Wouldn't it be something to be at a prayer meeting where Jesus would lead in prayer, where he was not only the leader of the prayer meeting, he would lead in prayer. Wouldn't that be some prayer meeting? He would not be praying, divide us, O God, scatter us like sheep upon the hillside. Oh, decimate us. Send us to the far corner in one and two with our peculiar banner and our special distinctive. He would be praying, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another. And then let's go to chapter 17 of John and listen to his prayer. He says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Talking to his disciples, praying with his disciples. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so 
I also sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they might also be sanctified. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou art in me, and I in thee, Father, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, even as thou hast loved me. That's the prayer of the Master. How do our selfish ambitions, our denominational ambitions, our scholarly ambitions, our economic ambitions, our divisive plans and programs fit into this prayer. I believe that if Jesus Christ came tonight, he'd call us to prayer. I don't believe he'd give us a lecture. I believe he'd pray with us. And I believe he would weep over our divisions. He would weep over our divisive attitudes. He'd weep over our selfish sectarianism. He would weep over our personal aggrandizement, the heaping together of plans or treasures or pleasures for our own personal benefit. I believe the Son of God is a weeping Christ. And if he were here tonight uh, calling us to prayer, there would be a sob and a groan akin to the agony of Gethsemane because those that name his name those who adhere to his doctrine, those who lisp his name, those who pledge such fealty and loyalty to his word are nevertheless at one another's throats across the country and in private and in, in, in personal counsel until my friend it grieves the heart of Jesus Christ if he would call us together in inner accessory prayer, his prayer would be that I in them and thou in me, the interpenetrating personal relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father, the unity that exists in the triune God is a, indeed a mystery that defies speculation, defies definition, defies the keenest mind and the keenest intellect. But God and the Father and the blessed Holy Ghost and the precious Son are one. They are one in each other. There is a love and a unity that they notice that last phrase here that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. God loved God the Father loved his Son. God the Son loved his disciples. God the Son's disciples are to love one another. That doesn't mean division. That doesn't mean contention. That doesn't mean the kind of carnal strife that flies under the banner of sanctified zeal. 
whereby we compass land and sea to get our denominational birthmark on someone. And after we have done so, they may be sevenfold more a child of hell than they were before. I believe he would call us to prayer. The New Testament emphasis is an emphasis on unity, upon oneness, upon our being together. We are baptized into one body by one spirit. There is one faith and one Lord and one baptism and one hope of our calling. It's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. You know what it means to maintain? It means to keep everlastingly working at the job of staying together. That's how you keep married. That's how you... That's how you work a team or a span of oxen or a team of horses, by working together. Now, you see, I don't know everybody here, and I don't know everything, but I, I know this as I travel from coast to coast in the north to the south. Each year it's getting increasingly more distressing as we divide. We've lost sight of Jesus. We've elevated truths, good truths, things that are solid, things that are genuine, things that are authentic. We have elevated them to such heights, to such eminence, and then rallied our forces and our scholarship, question mark, on scholarship. You can find scholars on each and every side and any side of almost anything you wish. And the result is the, the rending, the tugging, the pulling, the rupturing of the body of Christ. I know you run the aisles better when we preach on bobbed hair and television and jewelry. I know you get more spiritual exercise if I would harangue on divorce and remarriage. I know you'd uh, turn cartwheels and support uh, things a lot better with your pocketbook if we'd if we'd sort of come down and shake your hand, but I've never I've never knowingly God knows ever preached to the grandstands, and I'm not interested in the grandstand. There's there's another one to whom I'm endeavoring to please. And I believe, Dale Yoakum, we're at such a crucial crossroads. I, someone said the other day, said, Smooth, what's beyond the crossroads? I'm not sure there is anything beyond the crossroads. We're at the crossroads. We'll either take the right road or we're, we're, there's nothing but a pit. There's nothing but a collision. There's nothing but a wall. There's nothing but disaster. I would to God our movement could stop before we hit the wall. I would to God we'd come to the T in this thing called the journey of on the highway of life and we'd come to our senses and we'd make the right and proper calculated turn in the will of God. Amen. I shouldn't even ask, I'm not asking for amens, but the implication is there that I think you should. No, it's not necessary. I'm here tonight trying to clear my soul. Sir, 
we would see Jesus. If Jesus, if we were to see Jesus tonight, I believe he'd disarm all the generals and the buck privates, and I think he'd destroy our, the air forces and the arsenals, and I think he'd uh, strip them all of their outfits, you know, and he'd take take the swords away from all the boys and beat them into, into plowshares, and he'd take the spears away and beat them into pruning hooks. We've developed an army of fighters. We've developed a phalanx, rank upon rank of scrappers. We glory in being contenders and fighters. We're all fighting for the faith. We grind our teeth and shake our fists and and we jump up and down, but we're losing the world all the while. All the while, you're bar burnishing your armor and, and polishing your sword and making sure your spear has a fine point. And all the while, we're working with the habiliments of war. Jesus Christ cause goes begging for disciples who will carry the message of the meek Nazarene. Oh, I know what you're saying. You're saying, well, Brother Smool, he said he would send a sword. He did say he would send a sword, but he didn't say you were to wield the sword and that we were to cut each other up in the process. He said he would send a fire, but that's no sign you need to ignite fires around the country or carnal, ambitious fires in the hearts and minds of people you contact or sit in their living room or by their fireside or around a restaurant or a McDonald's sometime. He'll send the fire and he'll send the sword. But he said he also came to send peace. I believe if Jesus Christ came tonight, I believe he'd disarm the generals who are marching out to war. Amen. I believe he would disarm the generals, the captains. I believe he would put down and, and give considerable time to changing the mood and the attitude of many good men and holy men and spiritual minded men, but get them to see that when he appears in the celestial city at the end of the book of Revelation, he does not appear in bright and shining armor as one who has dispatched the armies of the aliens and the, and the opposers of the Lamb. He does not appear on a charger riding forth to battle. He appears not in the garb of a lion, not in the garb of a of a leader, he appears in the garb of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. I looked and behold a lamb in the midst of the throne, a lamb as it had been slain from the foundation of the world. And it appears in the revelation and it appears through scripture whenever Christ seems to have an opportunity to display the side of his character and his nature and his divinity that he most delights to display. It's that of a lamb. Amen bleeding lamb, a lamb sacrifice, a lamb serving the hunger and the needs of a lost world. And I believe if Jesus Christ would return tonight he'd, he'd stack the arms and he'd put up the swords and he'd demolish your little navies and armies that send their missiles around the country chattering and chopping and machine gunning and fussing and contending. I believe we'd stack our arms outside of this building would be a stack of a, a, an arsenal of weapons that have been used 
Well, with good intention, with the right thing, defending the truth, standing for what's right, standing for this and standing for the other and opposing this and protesting that. But my dear friend, where are our captives? We have no captives. We've slain one another. We've scattered the flock. We defeated the cause of Christ. Where are our fields? Where are our flocks? Where are those that we would lay at the master's feet? The lamb has been slain that we might bring to him from the ends of the earth, men and women and boys and girls, the black and the red and the yellow and the brown. Bring them all together under the banner of the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. Oh, I believe he would disband them and then send us all out as peacemakers. Blessed are the generals. No. Blessed are the Peters that pull the sword aiming for a head and only getting an ear. But then, after all, a ear is better than nothing at all. But Jesus, stooping, picks it up, said, Put up thy sword. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is of another world. Put up thy sword. Peter reluctantly returned his weapon to its scabbard. I believe if Jesus were to meet with us tonight, he'd send us out of here as peacemakers. Why, some of you fellows would be out of business. You wouldn't know what to do with yourself if you just go out here as a peacemaker. Let me tell you, friends, the most dangerous occupation in the world is that of a peacemaker. The fellow who would make peace between the north and the south will get shot from both sides. Whether he's gray or whether he's blue, he's yellow as far as everybody's concerned. This is not a self-chosen role. I've been feeling lately God would have, have, have me be more of a peacemaker. I think I have to confess that I've probably done as much protesting and contending. I can go through my notes, L.W. Barbie, and find notes that uh, earnestly contending for the faith. I used to, I've probably backslidden now. But anyhow, I used to be able to preach up a storm with that sermon. I used to lop off a lot of compromising heads, let the blood flow. And when I was on my charger, my lance firmly placed, my helmet pulled down, the helmet of salvation, of course, It's amazing the carnal satisfaction. You might call it something else. The carnal satisfaction. Is anybody listening to me? Did you all turn me off? Am I on your channel yet? If I'm still on your channel, put your hand up. 
Well, I'm glad a few haven't turned off. I thought maybe you lost your current out there or something. I got so quiet. If an army of peacemakers would leave this, you know, they used to say, was it the old 44 or 45? Or maybe it was the old, it was the old 3030 that was the peacemaker of the West. Made men equal, the 3030. But you know what was the real peacemaker in the early days of this nation? The circuit rider. He was the peacemaker. In those early days of America, 60% of the folks that belonged to any church at all belonged to the Methodist church. And the old Methodist preacher was in those places almost before the fellow got his horse on tied up to a tree or anything else. Long before his axe took a bite out of the first tree, he might be interrupted by another fella, tired and worn, but saddle-wise and horse-wise drop, drop in and say a word. Surely before he gets the first fire in the fireplace, the circuit rider will be there. One fellow got so exasperated over the circuit riders are always here. Those Methodists are always here. Those Methodists are bothering me. And so he got up and he made a move and he moved across the country two or three hundred miles. And he just got the cabin up and things going, looking fairly decent. Here comes in the yard a fellow coming on horseback. He looks out, he can tell by the broad black hat and the black outfit he's wearing. Tell by him, that's the Methodist preacher. He told his wife after he managed to get him out of here, get him out of here. He packed up and moved on and came into Illinois. Moving into Illinois, he didn't have the cabin up. He just had a few trees felled. And through the brush you heard Russell look down. Here's a fellow coming on his horse. Sure enough, it's a Methodist preacher. He said, blankety blank, you Methodist preachers are everywhere. He said, yes, sir, we are everywhere. He said, you might as well make your peace with us. We're going to follow you wherever you go. Oh, it wasn't the same fellow that he met in Kentucky. It wasn't the same guy he had bumped into in Indiana. This was another one, but it was the same kind of a guy. They were the same kind of peacemakers. He said, you might as well make your peace with us. For he said, sir, if you go to heaven, you'll find us there. And he said, sir, if you go to Kentucky, you'll find us there. And if you go to Missouri, you'll find us there. And if you go to hell, he said, I'm sorry to say, but you'll probably find some of us there. You might as well make your peace with us. That's the kind of peacemakers we need to send out. Fellows who will follow the trail, those who will go out night and day, those who will face the, the elements, those who will seek for the lost, the real peacemakers, the message of the Prince of Peace and the King of Peace. The world is a troubled world, a distressed world, a broken world, a restless world, a weary world. They're looking for peace. Only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can give them the peace that they need. That's why he cried, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. I'm not a general or a corporal. I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest or peace to your soul.
Yes, I believe if Jesus was here, he'd send out an army of caring, compassionate disciples, evangelists of the cross, who would meet the need and the hunger of the day. There's a vast multitude out there that's hungering and they're hurting. They care little about our skirmishes and our warfare. Now, some of you look like you've lost your last friend. You probably thought I was your friend and now you've lost me too. Well, so be it. Last night, as I gathered about my little radio over in my apartment to listen to the State of the Union address, my heart was deeply touched by what I heard President Reagan say. If you remember, those of you that heard it, how many heard the President's address last night? As they were coming in and finding their place, the announcer said, there are four young people with, sitting by Nancy Reagan. Who are those four young people sitting up there in the balcony with the President's wife? No one knew, seemed to know who they were. But somewhere in the, near the end of the president's address, he stopped and he said, I want to make some remarks tonight, especially to the young people of this great nation. And then he called attention to four unusual exploits of daring and of bravery by children, by very, very young people. Not even toughened teens, just young people. There's a little fellow by the name of Trevor from Philadelphia who is seated beside Mrs. Reagan. He was one of the heroes. What did he do? He did something that makes, makes us all ashamed, really. What did he do? Did he put his finger in a leaky dike and save a nation? No, he didn't do anything as dramatic as that. Did he find uh, in his little computer, did he find on his computer a special way of making an instrument that would go to the stars? No, he didn't do that. One night, he went to his daddy it was a December night, December the 8th to be exact, two years ago, last December. This 11-year-old boy went to his daddy and he said, Daddy, it's an awfully cold night out there. And he said, I, I have learned that there's thousands and thousands of homeless people here in Philadelphia that don't have even a blanket to cover them up. Not even a blanket, Daddy. He said, well... What can we do about it? He went to his mother and said, Mom, I heard about there are thousands of people down there in lower Philly that don't even have a blanket. Some of them are freezing to death. They find them about 20 every morning are frozen to death because they don't even have a blanket. Mom, we've got some blankets around here. Mama, we've got some blankets. And he went off and apparently found a few here and pulled a few there together. And I heard the interview with his father today. They interviewed his father and asked him, well, how did this come about? How did he get downtown? 
He said, well, I hate to tell you this. He says, now I go to church twice on Sunday. I go to Bible study on Wednesday night. I go to a Thursday night special class. And he said, there's a special breakfast luncheon among Christian businessmen that I attend. But he said, "I, I hate to say this, but he said he just nagged me and nagged me and he and his mother until we just gave in and said, well... And he said, really, I want to tell you, the motive for taking him down there was not good at all. He said, we decided we'd take him down and just show him what a mess it was and how one little old boy could never do much of anything about it. So he said, we got in the car and we put the blankets in. And he said, we drove down the rough to the rough and tumble area of Philadelphia. And he said, there they are. See them? He said, stop the car a minute, Daddy. And he took his first blanket and he went over to an old man who was lying on a grate, just a sewer grate. His father said he had long whiskers. He was dirty. And a little boy, a little boy, 11 years old with a blanket. He went over and knelt down by the old man and said, Mr. Hey, Mr. Mr. Yeah, well, are you, would you like a blanket to keep you warm? And looking up bleary-eyed, he saw a little lad, about 110 pounds, with a blanket. And he gave it to the man. Went down the street and gave it to, gave another one. But the word got around, hey, a kid came by here last night and gave me this blanket. Hey, a kid came to, well, I got one too. And in just a matter of a few days, the people down on Skid Row, the down and outers, the derelicts, that thought no one loved them and no one cared, no one had a heart. He was the talk of the whole thing. That thing has developed until two years. This 13-year-old boy... Last night, sat by the side of the wife of the President of the United States. At the proper place in the message, the President asked for Trevor and the other three young people who had also done something heroic to stand. And there the President of the United States and the Vice President and the Speaker of the House and every Senator and every Congressman and every distinguished person in the house, plus millions and millions on radio and television, bowed their heads or clapped their hands in wonder and astonishment. In the interview today with the boy's father, his dad said, he's not nothing special. He's an ordinary kid. He's just a boy. He has homework to do. He's not running a business. But he's got 251 other people motivated in 15 different states of the Union. Calls are coming in from around the world. He's been on the British Broadcasting Company, presented him to all across the British Isles by interview. Good morning, America, whatever that is. I think that's a news program that comes on every morning on television presented him. 
He has a call from Brazil, a call from Japan. He has calls from nations around the world wanting this 13-year-old boy to just come. What could a 13-year-old boy do? He's just an ordinary boy. I believe if Jesus came back, I believe that boy would stand there along with the little fellow that gave the loaves and the fishes. I wish we could turn our movement around. The holiness people want... Can you hear me? Are you listening at all? There was a day when the holiness movement had a social conscience about the poor. That's where William Booth came in. That's where the Salvation Army let its colors fly. We were that kind of a people one time, but we're now, we're rich, and we're increased with goods. Now we draw our swords. Now we fuss and contend. Nobody can see the beauty of holiness because we're so busy flashing our swords. The loveliness of the peacemaker that Christ would make out of each of us as evangelists of his compassion could be seen. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. I was hungry, but you didn't give me anything to eat. And I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I hope the other side of that verse would be true of us. I was in prison and ye visited me. I was in hunger and ye fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. When saw we thee in prison and visited thee? When saw we thee in hunger and fed thee? When saw we thee cold and covered thy nakedness? And he'll say, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Wouldn't it be something if Jesus would meet us tonight? We'd see Jesus, he'd call us to prayer. If Jesus would come down the middle aisle tonight, and I believe he's here, but if he'd come in a visible form down the middle aisle tonight, I think most of us would want to fall on our knees in confession. We'd want to confess our coldness and our carelessness. We'd want him to pray that we'd be a united people. We'd want him to, we'd ask him to cleanse us from the inside our things that divide us. Ask him to cleanse our eyes with tears where we'd have compassion. We'd see clearly not critically. Well, I I feel like it's time for me to pray. And if you want to gather with me, and I wish you would, I think it'd be a good way for us to invite Jesus in a special way tonight. We would see Jesus in this prayer meeting around this altar. The rest of the camp could be different if we'd meet him tonight. I believe he's here. I believe he wants to help us in this. I believe he wants to unite us as his people. He wants to cleanse us not only from our sin, but he wants to cleanse us from our selfishness. I believe he wants to appoint us 
as captains of compassion and send us out with a blanket or send us out to the hungry or send us out to our hurting world. Will you gather with me while we pray? Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.